You can make your way back to your seats. Uh, and when you get there, would you open your Bibles to Psalm 125? Psalm 125 is where we're going to be this morning. So would you get there, when you get there, I'd ask you if you would stand out of reverence for God's word as we read our text this morning. Psalm 125 reads as this. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem, and the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forever. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. Do what is good, Lord, to the good to those whose hearts are upright. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with the evildoers. Peace be with Israel. Let's pray. Father God, you are so kind to us. Lord, even as we have read this text this morning and the reality that you surround us even now. Father, we praise you for that. Lord, I ask that nothing more than you would be glorified during this time from the preaching of the word and also to the receiving of your word, God. Lord, would you be with me this morning? Would you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word? Father, would you be glorified? It's in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you're visiting with us, welcome. My name is Pastor Jesse. I'm privileged to serve as one of the elders here. Uh, And we are two weeks into our um, uh, series, Summer in the Psalms. So Pastor Michael opened up last week with uh, Psalm 1, and today we're going to be in Psalm 125. Um, So let me give you a little background just of where we are in the text. So if you notice there on the transcript, uh, as you look at the subheading in Psalm 125, it says, uh, A Song of Ascents. So what that is, there's actually 13 Song of Ascents in the Bible. That's from Psalm 120 to 134. Um, excuse me, 14. Um, if you, you can tell that I'm not very good at math, that's why I got a Bible degree. So, but this one, we're not really sure who the author is here. Some scholars would attribute it to David, uh, some not so much, because David wrote four out of the 14 song, uh, Songs of Ascent. But commentator John C. Collins is helpful in just describing what these were used for uh, and, and what the Song of Ascents actually are. So John Collins says this, This diverse group, that would be the Song of Ascents, includes individual and community laments, songs of confidence, thanksgiving hymns, a song celebrating Zion, Wisdom Psalms and Royal Psalms for a liturgical occasion. So specifically where we are here today, or I'm sorry, so what these would be used for is there's a couple varying uh, positions on what they were actually used for. So I'll give you three. Uh, I'll give you all the positions, and they all sound good to me. Uh, So that's good. They're all used for good things. So some would argue that these were songs written as Israel returns from exile. So these would be, don't forget, in in Psalms, this is a song, right? This was made to be sung. This was made to be not only read, but it's a song, right? A lot of y'all been singing that new Taylor Swift album that just came out this week. Not the same thing, much different, but it's made to be sung, okay? So this would be sung. So as Israel was returning from exile, 
they would be singing this song. Or another position is, is that as they were ascending up into Jerusalem to the temple, as they are ascending up, they would also be singing this song to remind themselves and, and, and to, to one another um, as they, or lastly, um, Israel had a pilgrimage festival. It's also seen in, in, in 2 Kings 18, I believe, to where as they would return to the temple from wherever they were to go and worship into Jerusalem, again, it would be sung. So what I'm trying to tell you is it was a song that was supposed to be sung as they were returning to do one thing, to remind themselves and one another of the faithfulness of the Lord, okay? That's all I want to do this morning. So before we get there, let me give you just maybe a little, um, a little just illustration and help you kind of to help paint this picture. In God's providence, my wife and I and my daughter, last week we started to build a fence, okay? Just let me go ahead and tell you, it went great. It went really, really well. It actually did towards the latter end. But before we got there, so I was real stressed because like when we was, also appreciate you, Corey, for helping us get the wood. So Corey's smiling because he like knows, you know. But before we got there, I was just kind of thinking, I helped my brother Jonathan build a fence slightly. He did most of the work. And uh, his looks really good. It looks really good. So I was just like, man... We've already kind of done it. Like, it's probably going to go smooth, you know. That's just, never, that's just never how it goes. So what we did is, for a minute, we was doing old school. Basically, what they was doing, when they would be filming, is we'd have to, you know, what the, I don't know what it's called, post digger. Okay. I'll, whatever he said. So, you know, you hit it in the ground, dig the hole, pull it out, lay the post, cement it. So as, as I was thinking just kind of about that process, it, it made me reflect on why are we even building this fence, right? So let me tell you why. So our backyard lines up directly with the alley that's a road that it gets pretty heavy vehicle and foot traffic, like basically right on our yard. So it serves two purposes. One, it serves to keep us in, and it serves a purpose to keep everyone else who's not supposed to be in out. Specifically, my wife and my daughter and myself to be in, and our neighbors more than likely, as Ren is playing in the backyard as she grows older, we want her to have a space to where we don't have to be so worried about her wandering into the road and getting hit by a car. It's pretty logical, right? But it made me think about this need for stability uh, and protection and, and longevity of the stability, right? We didn't just buy wood that isn't pressure treated and it's made to endure outside, right? Because what's the point of laying something into a foundation if it's going to, in a year, just turn to dust, Right? So we bought pressure-treated wood. We didn't just dig the hose and stick the, the posts in the ground and just pray that the Lord would keep it. No, we cemented it there, right? But if you noticed in our text this morning, a lot of the first two verses are just about the stability that the Lord provides. So all I want to show you this morning is the only real and eternal stability that we have in our lives to keep us in and to keep other things out is the Lord. That's it. I just want you to see that the Lord's faithfulness is the absolute and only basis of stability in your life. That's it. That's all I want to do this morning. So title of the sermon this morning, I forgot to tell you, is The Surrounding Savior. 
okay, the surrounding Savior. So we're going to jump straight into, into uh, my first point. I only got two points for you uh, this morning. Hopefully that all, you're probably thinking, oh, two points, going to be quick. We'll see. We'll see. So point one, the Lord is forever our stability. The Lord is forever our stability. Let me tell you, and also, I have been in this psalm, clinging to this psalm for like three months now. Like, I have absolutely been clinging to this. And let me tell you one of the reasons why. If you caught it at the front end, this is like a passage to where the encouragement is right there at the front. Right? A lot of times we just have to get through. As a trick question, you should think that all of the Bible is encouraging. Gotcha. But, no, I'm kidding. But for real. But for real. Look at, look at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like, are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The encouragement is just so clear there. So let's break it down. Who is he speaking to? Okay, who is the psalmist speaking to here? Those who trust in the Lord. All right, so this is written specifically for God's people. Hint, that's Israel and that's us. Amen, praise God. But the, the faithfulness, or it's written directly to those who trust in the Lord. This is for God's covenant people. But can we talk a second of what the psalmist compares God's covenant people to? To Mount Zion. Now, let me give you a little background here on Mount Zion. All right, so this is also a physical place in the old city in Jerusalem. It's still there today. So it's a physical place, okay? It's a real place. I actually looked it up yesterday and was kind of watching a YouTube video of somebody kind of walking around Mount Zion. It's pretty cool. You should check it out. That one was in 4K, so it looked real nice. But it was also kind of long, so I just kind of skipped through it. But anyway, so it's still there today, and it was the highest point in ancient uh, Jerusalem. So it, it's walled in. Um, it, it's beautiful. It, it really is beautiful. It's, it's, it's just also really helpful to see, like, physicality in real places when we think of the Bible. Like, it's just a good reminder that, like, this stuff actually, it's a real place. It's, it's a real place. But here's where the, the real, not the real significance, but the, the significance of Mount Zion as a physical and spiritual reality of where, where the Lord dwells. Listen to Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, rising splendidly in the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in the citadel. Church, the significance of the comparison between the people of the Lord to Mount Zion is massive. It's massive. Do you understand that the psalmist is comparing God's covenant people to where God dwells, to where he is, to, to where he lives? So what he's telling us, not only is he comparing us to Mount Zion and Israel on that day, but he's telling them that they cannot be shaken. It remains forever. But why? Why does it remain forever? Why can it not be shaking? It's because God is there. That's the huge encouragement there. That what has kept me in nights and nights of sleeplessness, of not sleeping, what has encouraged my soul is the fact that because the Lord is not moved, I'm not moved. Because the Lord can't be shaken, 
I don't have to be shaken. So as we break this down just a little bit more, just in points of application, you'd be thinking, okay, Pastor Jesse, I get it. But how do I really know what trusting the Lord looks like? What, what does that really look like? Well, let me just give you just a couple practical applications of what living faithfully and trusting in the Lord is like. One, we have to point out what the object of their trust is. It's the Lord. The object of their trust is the Lord. It's not in themselves. It's not in the temple. It's not in Jerusalem. It's the Lord. Secondly, for us, trusting in the Lord looks like taking God at his word. Believing God is who he says he is. That's the basis, right? Because the Bible teaches us about God and who he is. So let me read to you 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So to trust the Lord, we take the Lord at his word. Secondly, trusting that the Bible gives a real account for who Jesus really is. And not only because of who he really is, but knowing that because of his finished work on the cross and the defeat of death and sin, is proven through his bodily resurrection. Listen to Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of this truth, church, when everything is just hitting the fan, when you're just not really sure what's happening in your life, when you're feeling like you've just been abandoned, when you feel uh, anxious, tired, bitter, stressed, whatever, afraid, You're afraid of that diagnosis to come. You're afraid of what's going to happen at your job. When you fail over and over and over with that one same sin and you think to yourself, am I even really a Christian? Or when you strive to read the Bible more throughout the week and again you fail. And you have a tendency to beat yourself up. And to feel guilty and try to atone for your own sin. Faithfulness and trusting in the Lord looks like remembering Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or even Lamentations 3 verses 22 through 24. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Church, all I'm trying to tell you is this morning is that trusting in the Lord looks like putting your faith in him through whatever you're going through. Through whatever it is, knowing that he will sustain you, knowing that he will keep you. But here's the, like, I know that can just be a concept, right? But even in that suffering of what we go through, they're feelings. They're not feelings, they're not emotions, That anxiety, is there not lack of physical sleep? Absolutely. And what's so good about the Lord is he's mindful of that. He knows that, right? He knows the anxiety that you're going through. He knows the stress that you're going through. And the good thing about the Lord is, church, that doesn't mean that we hide those things. We don't have to hide those things to trust in the Lord. That's part of it, is dealing with it, realizing it, and knowing that that same grace that is sufficient is still sufficient for even that. 
See, shame and guilt will tell us that we have to hide and retreat from the Lord. But church, remember, those who trust in the Lord are, Mount, are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. And as we move to verse 2, as we even think about dealing with how we're feeling, those thoughts that we really don't want to share with anyone when we're questioning what in the world God is doing in our life, verse 2 reminds us that he's already there. And not only is he already there, but he already knows it. Look at verse 2. The mountains surround Jerusalem and the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. So churches, we discussed the old city in Jerusalem, right? And even now, Jerusalem is, it's, it sits just below the mountains. So the, the mountains surround the city kind of, of, of like a wall, right? It, it's like a wall of mountains around the city of Jerusalem. And church, the word is telling us that the Lord surrounds every single aspect of your life. Excuse me. Every single aspect of your life is surrounded by the Lord. So when we think about being surrounded, right, I always just think of the movies to where it's just like, oh, you're surrounded. You know, come on out. Give up. It's always a scary thought for us, right? It's a scary thought for us, except when it's the one who, who created the world, has all power, and even so has your absolute best in mind. Your absolute best in mind. So as we discussed earlier, so what, whatever you are going through in your life, if you are fearing death, if you are fearing sickness, if you are fearing your job, if you are fearing your boss, if you are fearful of what's going to happen with your marriage, let me declare to you this morning, the Lord surrounds every single aspect of your life. Every single aspect. Now church, Remember that this is written to the people of Israel, right? There is 100% specific application in this. 100%. This specifically applies to each of us personally. But let me encourage you in this. Church, the Lord surrounds Newbury. The Lord surrounds Newbury Church. The Lord surrounds the churches here in Louisville, in Kentucky, in the U.S., in Ukraine, in Russia, in China. The Lord surrounds it all. So what does that tell us? Hey, let me be honest with you, okay? You are not the stability of this church. You're not. It's not about you and it's not about me. Your pastors and your deacons and your leaders are not the stability of Newbury Church. They're not. We are not. I will fail you 100%. Sorry about you. Both of the Michaels will fail you at some point. Pastor Lance will fail, you, will fail you at some point. He also may fail you if you're playing basketball too. Okay? Right? What I'm trying to tell you is, it is vain to put your hope in us. It is vain to put your hope in yourself. Church, this just should empower us. This should be encouraging to us. Because not only... Is the Lord's faithfulness the means of our salvation, but it's also the gust and the wind in ourselves for our faithfulness to the Lord? Because as we look back at verse 1 and 2, what is it and who is it that makes the people stable? It's the object of that faith, it's the object of that trust. It's the Lord. It's the Lord that makes Mount Zion unmovable. It's the Lord that makes you unmovable. 
It's the Lord that makes new breed church unmovable. It's the Lord who surrounds Jerusalem. It's the Lord who surrounds you. It's the Lord who surrounds new breed church. So church, even in the hardest of hearts, in the happiest of happies, the sustainment in your life is the Lord. He is surrounding you. He is keeping you stable. He knows your life. He knows your struggles. He knows your victories. So church, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that the Lord surrounds us on all sides? Let me encourage you with this. As the Lord surrounds us on all sides, every single aspect of our life, I can't help but think that the Lord knows my sin. He, he does. He knows it, right? What does Romans 5, 8 tell us? But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So church, this is an encouragement to us. Our, like Jesus didn't die for us three days later, raised from the grave and, just, and then be like, oh, they were sinners? Like nobody told me that, right? That's not true. So what does that encourage us to do? The Lord already knows. The Lord already knows your shortcomings. And we also know that we are, when we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us, right? So this is an encouragement to not hide anything from the Lord and not hide anything from one another because he already knows it. So as, as we look at this this morning, church, it is encouraging to me. It is convicting to me to know that, yes, the Lord surrounds me, so I must live a faithful and confessing life. Because confession can sometimes be scary, can it not? There are some things that I really have not wanted to say to my wife. There are some really hard things that I have not wanted to say to my wife. There have been some really hard things that I've not wanted to tell Pastor Michael. But what has gotten me to do so was one, the spirit within me reminding me, Jesse, he's already surrounding you. What are you keeping from him? What can you keep from him? And yes, it's scary, but do we forget that there's new mercy every morning? Don't you see that the, the grace and the mercy of God is the fact that we can go to him with hard, hard sins that we've never told anyone, and his arms are still open? His arms are still open, so it's not a matter of because God knows something about us that we run away, but God knows it about us, and he invites it and says, come and eat. Come and eat. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. All right, so let, let me help you paint this, or let me paint this picture for you. I'm not sure if you all have been around my wife and I and my daughter much, but my daughter is great. I love her. I think she's the best. I think she's absolutely the best, but she doesn't always listen. She doesn't always, and not only does she not only not always listen, but she also is getting to the point to where she's just like, she's really giving it to us nowadays. Like, she's really, really starting to find her sassy personality, and I absolutely love it. Like, I really, well... I love that she's strong-willed and that she speaks up for herself. That's what I'm saying. Because that's a great thing. It's a great thing. So when Megan and I discipline her, or we have a, a little chat with her, or we, or we talk to her, it's always out of love, right? It's always out of love because we have her best in mind. But just because she disobeys us and doesn't listen to us doesn't mean that we abandon her, right? Why? 
because we are her parents. It's unfathomable to me for me to abandon my daughter. It just, it's unfathomable. It's not natural. It doesn't make sense. We, at this point in her life, yes, it's ultimately the Lord who surrounds and sustains Ren. But, but for Megan and I, at this point in her life, we surround her. We take care and supply all of her needs. Church, how much more is it that the Lord does just the same for us? Just the same for his people. When we run away over and over and over, our Father in heaven invites us. Remember who it is that surrounds you. Remember who it is that surrounds you. And church, this is a surrounding that never ends. This is an eternal security and surrounding of the Lord. So, but as we deal with that, as we transition into the second point and look at verse 3, we, we have to notice, okay, the Lord is our stability. The Lord surrounds us. But what about all that else is going on in the world? Because we deal with a lot of hard stuff, right? We deal with, with people in power who are unjust. We deal with people in power who oppress. We deal with things that our job that are really hard and are not right. So how do we respond? How do we respond to that? So let's look at at verse 3, and this is my second point, which is the Lord who knows the wicked and the righteous. Second point is the Lord who knows the wicked and the righteous. So look at verse 3 with me. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. So what we see here is a transition from knowing that the Lord is our stability and our surrounding to knowing and recognizing that there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong. So the psalmist is acknowledging the fact that there are leaders of the land that have been given to the people of Israel who are not just. They are not following the ways of the Lord, and they are wicked. So let's listen again to what John Collins says. He says, The middle of the psalm stresses that the Lord intends to protect his city, not simply from enemies without, but from enemies within. The scepter of wickedness quoted there in verse 3 is kingly power held by Israelites who do not serve God and his people. So the text here is specifically in verse 3, focusing on threats from God's people amidst and among God's people. Right? So these are kingly leaders over Israel who just really aren't faithful to the Lord. Right? Church, this is Israel we're talking about. Israel, right? Do they, they don't always have the best track record of being faithful to the Lord, yeah? What, what is, can you remember what the book of Judges says over and over and over? And the people did what was right in their own eyes. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. And also, over and over and over, we see in the history of Israel that these leaders who practice, injusti- who practice injustice, oppression on Israel fellow Israelites, and pagan worship, which in turn leads the people astray from their faithfulness to the Lord. But not also from within, but also with, without. This is a people who have been exiled. This is a people who have been enslaved. This is a people who have been attacked. This is a people who have been conquered and have been sieged by other nations. Church, this is a tired, this is a tossed, 
This is a troublesome, this is a weary people. But church, let me tell you what I found encouraging there. The Lord knows that the scepter of the wicked is over the land allotted to the righteous. Like that's encouraging for me to know that the Lord knows that there are wicked people. It's encouraging for me to know that the Lord knows that there are wicked rulers, right? We've always, we've heard that, um, what's that saying? Um, the devil you know is better than the one that you don't, right? You've heard that saying? Church, are you, I'm so thankful that the Lord is not ignorant of what is happening in the world. I am so thankful that the, the Lord is not ignorant of what is happening in my life. Because even in his kindness, look at the latter of verse 3. What's the concern there? It's not only that there are wicked people who are ruling over the land, but look at the end of verse 3. So that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. So that's the real concern. Okay, we have wicked leaders who are leading the people astray. They're oppressing them. They're killing them. They're leading them away to the Lord. Church, look at the insight here. The psalmist is mindful that persistent oppression, injustice, and wickedness can cause us to think, where is the Lord in all of this? Because this is still happening. This is still happening to me, and it really stinks. Where is the Lord in this? So what, we do, what do we do with that usually? Let me tell you what I do when I feel like the Lord's not really helping me out or he's not there with me in this situation. I become the Lord. I take matters into my own hands. Not only do I try to avenge myself, but I try to fix it myself. That's the concern. That's the concern here in the end of verse 3. Now, let me be very clear. This doesn't mean that we don't take action against oppression. This doesn't mean that we don't take action against injustice. That's not what it's saying here, right? We fight for righteousness wherever we are. If that means we march in streets, that means that we march in streets. If that means that we have hard conversations with people, we have hard conversations with people. That's not what the psalmist is saying here, to be very clear. But let me quote Spurgeon here. I just think he was so helpful in in explaining this. He says, this is Charles Spurgeon. He says, the tendency of oppression is to drive the best of men in some hasty deed for self-deliverance or vengeance. If the rack be too long used, the patient sufferer may at least give way. And therefore, the Lord puts a limit to the tyranny of the wicked. Church, so what this tells us is, What this teaches us is the way that we respond to the wickedness of the world, the way that we respond to the wickedness of those in power over us is a matter of faithfulness to the Lord. It's a matter of faithfulness to the Lord. So let me give you a picture of what I'm talking about here. You may have read that book of Exodus before, specifically chapter 21. So let me paint the picture for you. My man's Moses is up, on the, is up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel have just been delivered from Egypt. Okay, the Lord has just parted an entire sea, and they walked on dry land. They've been freed from the, the slavery in Egypt. They were uh, spared uh, by Pharaoh. 
because the Lord destroyed all of them as he parted the Red Sea. So they've just been delivered from slavery, okay? This is Exodus 21.1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So let's break it down. The Lord has just delivered them from Israel and slavery. But notice who the people say that delivered them. They say it was Moses, right? And what's happened to Moses? We don't know what has happened to him. He's been up for too long. He's delaying and coming down. So what do they do? They ask Aaron to fashion them a God who will go before them. So after they take all of the jewelry, all of the gold, they fashion into a golden calf and they bow before it. And Aaron says and declares, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Church, this is the concern. Who was it that brought, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? It was the Lord. It was only the Lord. And what's actually interesting, if you go back and read that text, the people say it was Moses who delivered them from Egypt. And when the Lord recognizes and knows what the people are doing, he says to Moses, hey, go get your people. The language changes from my people to your people. So what I'm getting at is, this church, we have the exact same tendency. When just everything is breaking loose in our life and we're not really sure where the Lord is, what we tend to do is try and fashion our own gods. And here's the thing too. The Lord is mindful of that. The Lord knows our tendencies. So the encouragement there is, is that the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. He won't allow it. He won't allow it. So church, what I'm getting at here is when we just try and take matters into our own hands, let me remind you of Psalm 94. But the Lord God is my refuge. My God, sorry, it just disappeared from me. My God is the rock of my protection. He will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them, church. Vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is the Lord's. But notice here that verses 1 and 2 is the basis of the faith, is the basis of the faith that the Lord will not allow the, the wicked to remain over the land, right? Because when evil people are in power, it's scary. When evil people are in power, it affects people. And it affects some of us differently and more severely. It may affect you differently than it affects me. It's scary. But church, can I remind you this? That the same God who brought Israel out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea is the same God who makes you unmovable. The same God who was meeting with Moses on the mountaintop is the same God that you get to pray and meet and enjoy fellowship with every single day. The same God who created the universe and all of it in it is the same God who calls you friend and daughter and, and son. The same God who tells the sea that you may go this far and no much further is the same God who directs your steps and your paths. The same 
seed that is foretold to crush the head of the serpent is the same God who encourages a small shepherd boy to, to crush the head of a giant. And this same God has never failed. So why do we think he's going to fail it with us? Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Church, so as, as we close, let's look at verse 4 and 5 here. Because it leads us, this reality of, of God's faithfulness to keep his people leads us straight into verse 4. Do what is good, Lord, to the good, to those whose hearts are upright. Now this turns into a prayer. The psalmist is now praying to the Lord, asking the Lord to do what is good to the good and to those who are upright. He is praying for the blessing of the Lord. But think back to 1 and 2. He already knows that the Lord is there they're surround, that the Lord surrounds them and the Lord keeps them and the Lord allows them to not be unmovable. So why is he asking for this, asking for the Lord to do good? He already knows it. Church, because there is something. There is something about voicing over and over and over and over in thought and also in prayer, verbally, the truths of Scripture. There's just something about it that makes it real to us. The psalmist is is confident the Lord is going to do good, but he's asking him again, Lord, please, to those who are good, to those who remain faithful, please bless them, do good, do good to us. Church, the motive is not only to do good. The the motive for our faithfulness is not the blessings that we receive because we are faithful. That's not the only motive. The motive is because we get the Lord. The motive of our faithfulness is God. It's not just the blessing of God, but it's his absolute and very presence. Church, this is what allows us to not be unmovable because the Lord is with us. This is what allows us to suffer and to be real about our suffering because the Lord surrounds us. And not only because he he surrounds us and, and, and he keeps us stable, but we also see in verse 5 what he does to those who are causing us to suffer. He also shows us what the Lord does and will ultimately do to the, the church's enemies. Look at verse 5. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with the evildoers. Church, think about who he's talking about here. Remember, this is to the people of God. But as for those who turn aside to the crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with the, with the evildoers. So there's a reality that some of those who are Israel aren't actually Israel because they show themselves and they turn aside to evil ways and, crook, and, and crooked ways. And what happens to them? They are banished with the evildoers. Church, what this teaches us is two realities. Well, three realities. One The Lord is true to all of his words, all of them. The ones that are encouraging to us and the ones that are a little frightful at times to us. So the reality is, is that the Lord, as in verse 4, will really do what is good to those who are faithful. And the Lord will really banish and destroy those who are wicked. It's really easy for us to skip over these simple and repeated principles sometimes because we hear it so much, we hear it so often. But church, what this teaches us is that faithfulness is worth it. 
Faithfulness to the Lord is worth it because he really will bless the faithful. And endurance and suffering and hardship is really worth it because he really will banish the wicked. He really will. And church, we have to be mindful that even once we were the ones who were sprinting down those crooked paths. We were the ones who had turned aside. But it was the Lord in his kindness and in his grace that brought us back to the fold of God. So as, as we end, let me remind you with this. Church, God really does win. He really does win. And not only does he win, church, he has already won. Can I remind you of what Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 reads? Look, God's dwelling will be with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Church, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Church, that is good news. Because I'm not sure about you, but I've cried some tears. Some of y'all cried a lot more tears than I've cried. Some of y'all are going to cry a lot more tears than I cry. I've got a lot more tears to cry in my life. There's going to be more grief and there's going to be more pain. But let me leave you with this. In all of it, in whatever it looks like, and however long it lasts, however much it hurts, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem and the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. So church, as you consider your life, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, and your, failure, your failures, consider the reality that it's God who sustains you. Consider the reality that it is God who surrounds you. And not only consider this, but let this be the gust of your sails to pursue holiness and to pursue faithfulness because the Lord really does bless the faithful. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and you are so kind. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. We thank you that you keep us and that you surround us, Lord, that you are our stability. Father, we thank you so much, God, that we have peace We have peace with you because of what your son Jesus did. Lord, would you be glorified? It's in Jesus' name, amen.